You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And today I'd like to start off by reminding you that there are so many things to do when it comes to wealthformula.com that you're not doing just by listening to this podcast. For example, go to wealthformula.com and pick up a free download of my book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. You can also go there and sign up for Investor Club. If you are an accredited investor and want to get off the sidelines and actually start investing, uh, that's how you do it. Sign up for Investor Club and start to see some of the potential deal flow that we do within the group. Finally, if you're just interested in getting more involved with this Wealth Formula community, check out wealthformularoadmap.com against wealthformularoadmap.com and join us in Wealth Formula Network. It is a wonderful opportunity. Starts off with a course and then there's a community on the back end uh, with a Facebook group, bi-weekly mastermind calls, video calls. Um, it's just a very good place for people to hang out and uh, share experiences and uh, grow together as investors. Collective intelligence is far greater than individual intelligence. So check that out again, wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, as for today, let's start talking uh, about this topic for today. It's called, uh, th there's this word that's used, perhaps overly used these days. Um, it's called the sustainable. This is a word that you hear all the time. And Frankly, I don't really, really even understand what the word means because people use it in so many different ways and for so many different things. Um, you know, I guess by definition, it means something that you can keep on doing in, in perpetuity, something you can recycle and use over and over again, right? Sustainable, right? It just doesn't run out. In that regard, let me point out that the kind of investing I advocate for in Wealth Formula is sustainable investing. Why do I say that? Well, for those of you in Investor Club, you know that one of the primary strategies I look for is called infinite returns. So the idea is to shoot for not 8% or 10% cash on cash. We want all of our invested capital back in our hands as soon as possible, preferably within four or five years while maintaining equity, cash flow, and eventually the benefit of capital gains on a property. Meanwhile, we use the money that we pull out of the first deal and recycle it into another deal. Uh, and that is, again, why I'm calling it sustainable investing. It sure is a lot easier than making more money because you're recycling capital from one deal into another and you're sort of double dipping, triple dipping over and over and over and over again. And, um, you know, it's just a very efficient means of growing capital. Anyway, the problem with this word sustainable is that it sometimes gets a bad rap from us capitalist types. It's a word that has some loaded connotations with the imagery of, you know, hippie socialists trying to tax us into carbon submission not caring about our pocketbooks at all. And that's why I don't think I will ever adopt this phrase into my own uh, brand, which is uh, sustainable investing. I think it's a good picture, but I don't think it, you know, it's like a sort of hippie investing thing. And, and that's not really kind of what I, I want my brand to be. Anyway, um, 
I'm not going to use that term, but it, it does describe the strategy pretty well, doesn't it? Uh, imagery aside, there does appear to be a growing capitalist case for renewable energies that just might not be easy to actually avoid over the next years. Just like computers, um, you know, doubling their power every couple of years. It seems like Moore's Law, I think, I don't know, is that what it is? The one with the computer technology? Uh, you computer guys know that that doubles over a period of time and it gets faster and faster and faster. Anyway, I think that's happening in the alternative energy space as well with solar and, you know, well, all the others, the other stuff, wind. Uh, in other words, in the next decade, you might see a massive shift in energy resources, not because people worry about the climate impact of fossil fuels, which admittedly I do. I certainly do because I do think that the science is real. Um, but rather because it's cheaper to use than, um, than fossil fuels. I mean, that, that, that might be what really drives it, right, is the economic part. Alternatives are getting cheaper and cheaper. They're getting cheap. And some people are saying they're already cheaper than fossil fuels. Now, I've heard multiple smart individuals talk about this in the past year. And so I think it's actually worth thinking about critically as an investor, you know, for our investments. Do we continue investing in fossil fuels? Do we start thinking? Do we start, you know, kind of hedging our bets there? So I thought it might be a good idea to have someone on the show who can intelligently speak on that topic. And so we have Hunter Lovins uh, today, um, and she can certainly speak very intelligently on this topic. And so when we come back, she will give us the financial capitalist case for investing in alternative fuels rather than fossil fuels. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, my guest on Wealth Formula Podcast is Hunter Lovins, uh, the president and founder of Natural Capitalism Solutions, which is a nonprofit formed in 2002. Uh, she's a renowned author and champion of sustainable development for over 35 years, has co-authored 15 books and hundreds of articles, uh, and was featured in the award-winning film Lovins on the Soft Path. Uh, she is a two-time winner of the Shingle Prize and has been featured in the Harvard Business Review. Hunter has uh, taught at numerous universities around the world and currently is a, a founding professor of sustainable management at Bard MBA. Hunter lectures regularly to audiences around the globe and has briefed senior officials in more than 30 countries. Hunter, welcome to Wealth Formula Podcast. Thank you so much. It is an honor to be with you. Was great to have you. And um, well, let's talk a little bit about um, you know your area is sustainable development. I think the most basic question for some of us less in, less involved with this, um, uh, you know, who are in the thick of it, uh, would be what exactly is sustainable development? It is a way of meeting the needs of the world that does not destroy our life support systems that enhances everyone's well-being. The way in which we do development now, and indeed uh, most of economics, is really good at flowing money to the 1% or 0.01%, while many of the rest of the inhabitants of the earth, human and beyond human, are suffering. 
So there, the Oxfam number from a few years ago is that eight men have as much wealth as the bottom 3.5 billion poorest. Mm-hmm. Inequality is now at soaring levels. Studies from uh, Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century, to the Human and Nature Dynamics Study that was funded by NASA show that high levels of inequality like this are causative of collapse. And indeed, the Handy study observed that under conditions closely resembling those now on the planet, we find it very difficult to avoid collapse. This is unsustainable. Collapse of governments, collapse of of what? Total system collapse. Mm -hmm. And the Handy study studied collapse throughout human history, they found it's actually fairly common. When it happens, it lasts for hundreds to thousands of years. You really don't like it. And they said it is driven by one or both of two things. You overrun your resource base or you have high levels of inequality. Mm -hmm. Hello, we have both. Right, exactly. So give us an example in history um, when that happened. The Handy study went through a whole series of examples. Indeed, there are cultures that we're only now finding the remnants of, but uh, the Roman Empire is is one example, the collapse of the Mayan Empire, uh, collapses of empires across Asia, and arguably the uh, the now incipient collapse of our own. Yeah. So, so what, what do you say to people who argue, well, you know, we live in different times now. We live in a global economy. Um, you know, things are different than they were during the Roman Empire. And, um, you know, we have all sorts of different support systems, uh, you know, sort of life support systems, as we've seen on numerous occasions, uh, to back up that idea of, you know, collapsing and maybe falling into the, you know, zombie apocalypse. Well, we... It's ironic, we actually know more about how to survive a zombie apocalypse than we know how to build a world that works for everyone. Sure. But the, the life support systems are failing. We are losing life on the planet now at a faster rate than since when the dinosaurs went extinct. The great scientist Robert Watson in a piece two days ago said that the loss of biodiversity is as serious a crisis as climate change. Of course, both are very serious and they are interconnected. The, our ability to provide for the well-being of almost 8 billion people now is increasingly at risk. And so we have uh, across Africa, the Middle East, 68 million human beings as refugees. What are we going to do with those people? They're fleeing failed crops, failed states, religious, ethnic rivalries, tensions, war. And all of these are interrelated to the unsustainability of the way in which development is done. So the thesis is, um, I guess, not only... So it's, it's sort of two-pronged, as I can tell. One is sustainability in terms of the environment, in terms of our resources, and then the other sustainability in terms of uh, our uh, global stability because of inequality and trying to kind of deal with those at the same time. Is that fair? 
Yes, sustainability is not just about the environment. It's certainly not about polar bears. It is about how we and all of life live on this planet. And we cannot have a spaceship Earth, as Adlai Stevenson pointed out, half wealthy, half poor, half incredibly well-fed, half hungry, half with access to the greatest knowledge humankind has ever had, and half uneducated and struggling. Right. So when you, when you look at how to address these problems, how do, you address, uh, how do you address these problems while staying within the confines of free markets and not immediately jumping to, um, you know, I guess, tax the top 1% and, and try to create, you know, try, try to tax into equality? What, what other options are there? Lots and lots. And that's the good news. You know, don't do this because it'll put you in a very bad mood, but you can Google near-term human extinction and find what purports to be science saying that humans go extinct within 10 years. I think the attitude taken by groups like Dark Mountain that it's over, we've lost, is profoundly irresponsible. We have all the technologies we need, all of the policy measures we need to solve all of the problems facing us, so let's go. My organization, Natural Capitalism Solutions, our middle name is capitalism. Let's use the very powerful market mechanisms that we know about to encourage entrepreneurialism, the, the greatest force of innovation that humanity has ever developed. We know how to solve the climate crisis at a profit through allowing the market to work. Now across the world, renewable energy is cheaper than fossil energy. It is only going to become more so. So we have uh, <laughs> idiots saying, I dig coal. I'm gonna do everything I can to uh, keep coal as an option when coal is dying from an attack of market forces. It simply is no longer cost competitive with energy efficiency, solar, wind, battery storage. I work with a man named Tony Seba who says, inevitably for fundamental economic reasons, the world will be 100% renewably powered by 2030. That is 20 years ahead of when the UN says the world has to be carbon negative if we're going to avoid the worst ravages of climate change. Tony's a Stanford prof, Silicon Valley entrepreneur, who says this is being driven by four forces, fall in the cost of solar, fall in the cost of storage, batteries, the electric car and the driverless car. No polar bears involved. This is basic market economics. I live on a ranch that is powered by the sun. I drive a leaf, a little electric car, and I have a higher quality of life from doing that, lower cost of power to meet all of my desires. This is just a better way of living. Now, if Tony is right, and I think he is more right than not, we are looking at the dissolution in value within 10 years time of oil, gas, coal, uranium, nuclear, the utility industry, the auto industry, the banks that hold paper in them, the insurance companies and pension funds that are invested in them, 
That's going to be the mother of all economic dislocations unless we manage this transition. One, for a just transition, taking care of the people who would otherwise be left behind, but getting the economic institutions like the banks, like the pension funds, to recognize that it is no longer good business to hold fossil energy stocks. So a few years ago, a group of us got together and created a little company called Change Finance to do just that, transform the, the finance sector. We built the first index of companies that are truly fossil fuel free. Launched it on Wall Street, uh, and it is, it's a large blend ETF that is, according to fossil free funds, the only 100% fossil free index. We have the lowest carbon footprint of any large blend fund. And this is a way that you can get your money out of ownership of fossil stocks, which are about to be stranded. A group called Carbon Tracker last November came out with a report saying that the fossil stocks that are about to be stranded represent 23 trillion in assets on, on various balance sheets. And they said, peak fossil, 2023. It's coming, it's coming fast. Where is your money? So, so tell me, help me understand why, what are the forces that are preventing, in this case, what you've described of, not as a, you know, not as a social, you know, save the polar bears, as you've eloquently put it, um, movement, but a simply Hey, this is this. These are market forces. This is what it's you know. This is how it's going to happen. What are the forces that are are in the way of that? If there are inertia. I, this is the way I've always done it. What's wrong with the way I've always done it? And I've had this debate with, for example, uh, the guy who advises the New York Common Fund, one of the really big pension funds, and I pointed out the work from a brilliant man named Tom Sanzillo, that had the New York Common Fund divested from owning Exxon and other fossil stocks 10 years ago, they would have made $17.5 billion more than they did make. Exxon used to lead the indices. It no longer does. And fossil stocks are dragging down portfolios. People say, well, but there's, you, you have to Modern portfolio theory, you know, you have to be invested in, in all asset classes. Not if they're going down. That's just bad investment philosophy. Modern portfolio theory didn't help anyone in 08, and it surely won't help anyone in the, in the coming dislocation if we don't make this transition to a, to a green future in an orderly fashion. The 08 collapse was over 2.7 trillion in stranded mortgage assets. If it's 20 plus trillion of stranded fossil assets, you don't want your, your money anywhere near that stuff. So you see this as a, I, I'm curious kind of how you see this playing out if there's not some concerted effort to make an orderly transition from carbon fuels to, to uh, sustainable energy. Like, what do, you, what do you see happening, and what is it that needs to be herded? 
Well, for example, in uh, about 2015, Peabody Coal had a little item in their 10K that if this divestment movement actually took hold, it might uh, negatively impact their stock value. It was less than a year and Peabody was broke, bankrupt. These are the kinds of one-off dislocations that when you put it all together, as the world transitions to renewable energy, again, for fundamental economic reasons, oh, and because if we don't, we will continue to have the fires in California, the cyclones hitting Mozambique, the bomb cyclone that hit the Midwest, the rains that are literally today flooding Houston, these all have economic impacts. Corporate supply chains are at risk from the effects of climate change. Oh, and people are dying. And people are having to leave their homelands. So we can solve all of those problems and do so at a profit if we're smart about it. We just have to ensure that the money transitions in an orderly way and that the people whose jobs will be lost have somewhere to move into. You know, um, uh, my friend and, and CPA, Tom Wheelwright, um, who's a very smart guy when it comes to taxes, um, describes a tax code to me as a series of incentives, right? And the incentives, uh, you know, certainly in the last several decades, I don't know for how long, but for investors, particularly investing in private uh, investments in oil and gas or coal, et cetera, um, are tremendous, right? I mean, they're, the, the possibility for tax benefits is, is enormous. And I've always been struck, even to now, how um, there really isn't the same level of tax benefits for sustainable uh, energy. Um, and when you, in the context of what you're saying, which is the market forces dictate that this is, you know, this is the future, I would think that there would be significantly more lobbying efforts on Capitol Hill from sustainable energy and um, to, to, to try to improve some of those tax incentives. There are some tax incentives for renewables, the uh, investment tax credit and such. The subsidies that are given to individuals who buy electric cars, although in my case, I bought a used one, so the, the tax benefit was already gone. And I bought mine in part because a friend said he had bought one, and what he paid in his monthly car payment was what he used to pay in gasoline. So in a sense, he had a free car. Yeah. I said, really? Went, took a look, ran the numbers, and sure enough. Sure. No, and I get that. I understand that. And there, there's a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of uh, reasons for it economically. But it, it hasn't really hit the government code. It hasn't hit the tax code. I mean, there is incentives, but nowhere near what you see in oil and gas and coal. I mean, we're- Well, take a look at what the oil, com the fossil companies- pay in lobbying. Well, that's my point exactly. They have a wholly owned and paid for Congress. So globally, 
there are $5.3 trillion a year given in subsidies to the various forms of fossil energy. All of the subsidies ever given to efficiency renewables is a fraction of that. My point, I think, in part is that if we're, if we're saying that free market forces will dictate that renewable energies will sort of rise to the top, that those lobbying efforts should actually shift in resources as well, right? I mean, those, those renewable companies, those solar companies, et cetera, should start to be able to get to the point where they're, you know, they own the Congress, not oil and gas and coal, Well, I would prefer that the people own the Congress, but then I believe in the tooth fairy too. What's amazing is that even given the massive incumbency power of the fossil industries, that solar is doing so well. Here in Colorado in the end of 2017, our coal-loving utility put out an all-source bid. Who can get us 1,100 megawatts, any price, any source, y'all bid? Fossil natural gas came in at four cents a kilowatt hour. Wind came in a bit below two cents, solar a bit above two cents. Wind plus solar plus storage, three cents a kilowatt hour. Excel said no. Bid it again. Uh, the, the solar tariffs. Well, solar tariffs had raised the price, fall in the cost of solar had brought it back to where it was. The numbers came in the same. Excel said, huh went to the Public Utility Commission and said, can we close two of our coal plants and pledge to go two-thirds renewable? Since then, they have pledged to go 100% renewable. These are real-life commercial utility-scale bids from the renewables industry. So maybe they don't even have to go to Congress lobbying. Although they, they endeavor to, and they endeavor to get a level playing field. I mean, we're talking about the free market as if we had one. We don't. We have what my friend Randy Hayes calls cheater economics, cheater capitalism, where the incumbents are heavily subsidized. And even given that, renewables are winning. Right. So again, where is your money and do you want it tied up with an industry that is manifestly a losing industry? Sure. And I think one of the one of the things that I think potentially is not there yet that would um, benefit is you mentioned, for example, in, in the case of oil and gas, you've got companies like Exxon, these big companies that are known as industry leaders. We don't really have those so much yet in uh, in renewables, do we? No, although they are coming. What is too bad in in a sense is that many of them are coming in China. The Chinese government took a look at the basic economics and said it's all over but the shouting and has put a lot of subsidies into solar, into batteries, into electric cars. When I was in China about a month ago, they had opened an entire freeway lane for autonomous vehicles. Autonomous vehicles will cost you one-tenth what it costs to buy, fuel, maintain, insure a private vehicle to deliver what you want, which is to get from here to there. And they're coming, they're on the road today. When I was in Vegas last December for the national finals rodeo, I whistled up a lift 
and up came a little dialogue box, would I accept an autonomous vehicle? And I said, yes, yes, in the event I got one with a driver. But uh, recently, Ford Motor Company announced it was buying uh, Ruvalin, the electric truck company. We're going to start seeing electric SUVs, electric pickup trucks. Tesla has said we're going to have an autonomous vehicle transit service. We're going to shift from the, the mental model of I own a car to I purchased the service of getting from here to there. And when we do that, of course, there go the oil companies. Right, right. So the smart oil companies will start to transition. And if you look, for example, at Shell Oil's recent scenarios, their sky scenario sounds very like what I'm talking about. It'd be interesting to see if the corporate leadership is smart enough to move that company in that direction. What, what, what direction is that? What can you talk a little bit about what, what you're seeing with them? Shell was many years ago, back in the 90s, the world's largest company and one of the world's smartest because they used this discipline called scenario planning, where they told themselves plausible, contradictory stories about how the future might unfold. Based on that work then, they found it entirely plausible that by 2050, Europe would be half renewable. So they created Shell Solar, Shell Wind, Shell Hydrogen, Shell Efficiency. Then the, uh, the very capable manager, Sir Mark Moody Stewart, who's managing director, rotated out. A man named Phil Watts came in. Phil was an old line oil man. He said, we're just going to drill oil. Uh, they had a little problem. They didn't have the proven reserves of the other oil majors. Now, to Sir Mark, this wasn't a problem. They were transitioning away from oil. To Phil, it was a real problem, so he uh, did what a lot of corporate leaders will do in that circumstance. He cooked the books. He got caught. Shell shareholders took a 40% share bath. He then was replaced, and the man who is now managing director has gone back to scenario planning. Shell has these three scenarios, mountains, oceans, and sky. You can go on the Shell website and read these scenarios of how the future might unfold. Under sky, it looks very much like what I've been talking about, a transition to renewable energy, not as fast as Tony Seba says we're going to make it. So then it's a question of uh, who's right. Well, it's who's right, the transition is fast. Right, and, and so in that regard, you may see a company like Shell or Exxon um, actually transitioning from an oil company to an energy company um, because they're probably in the best position to take advantage of that. I mean, you see that, um, it was that company, the, the, uh, the film uh, um, photography uh, uh, film company that uh, that didn't switch to digital cameras. Uh, you mean Kodak? Kodak, right? And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and went broke. Well, pre presumably they were in the broke. best position to adapt the technology and and take a lead because they had the you know they had the brand and they had the money, etc. And this could similarly be one of those scenarios where. Uh, you have some of these uh, uh, oil leaders actually coming out and being the big companies in renewables as well. But you have to have the intelligence and you have to have the unfettered foresight. Now, scenario planning will give you that. 
will Shell be smart enough to then execute on that? If I were holding Shell stock, I would be looking for every evidence that they are, or I'd be getting the heck out. I don't believe Exxon has that intelligence. Obviously remains to be seen. Exxon's making a big play around algae oil, but it's still this notion of we're gonna sell oil. Yeah, but if you have autonomous electric vehicles, is anybody gonna wanna buy your oil? So recently, Shell bought the largest electric vehicle charging company in Europe. And I went, aha, uh -huh, somebody's awake over there. Right, right. Makes a lot of sense. Well, listen, tell me a little bit about your consulting, uh, what types of consulting you do. And, and, you know, tell us a story about a, uh, maybe a victory or, you know, some, some promise that you saw through one of these consulting efforts. Arguably, the, the biggest victory was a little company called Interface Carpets. A man named Ray Anderson had bought a European carpet company, and its employees said, what's your environmental policy? Ray said, do we have one? Quick, somebody get me a book on the environment. A woman handed him a copy of Paul Hawkins' book, Ecology of Commerce, and the book essentially said, business as usual is destroying life as we know it on the planet. It is therefore the business of business to save the earth. Ray read the book the night before he was to give a speech to this, the employees of this new carpet company that he owned and described the moment as a spear in his chest. He said, there is nothing sustainable about my company we take thread made from polymers made from oil, spin it into carpets where it lays on the floor for maybe five years, then we tear it up, send it to landfill where it lasts for 20,000 years. And he said, we are gonna be the first company of the next industrial revolution. And I haven't any idea how to do that. He called Paul Hawk and said, are there any others out there like you? Paul said, yeah, pulled a bunch of us together Ray created what he called his dream team. And over the next five years or so, we helped Ray transform Interface into a commitment to have zero footprint, zero negative impact on the earth, 100% renewable, 100% circular economy, closed loop, no waste. Interface isn't all the way there yet. They set the goal of 2020 but they've come a very long way. And I was sitting with Ray in 2001, and he was amazed. He said, I did all this because I thought it was the right thing to do. What I'm finding is every aspect of my commitment to sustainability is enhancing shareholder value. And that got me to think, what is shareholder value? You've heard the phrase, the triple bottom line, that companies should have these three bottom lines of profit, and then people and planet. In practice, that doesn't work. I mean, come on, we know if times are hard, the company's going to look at profit. If I got to make payroll, where's the money coming from? But if I can show you that a commitment to behaving responsibly to people and to planet enhances every aspect of profitability, now it's not something that's bolted on, it's integral to the way you do business. 
So behaving more responsibly cuts your costs because you're no longer wasting. It reduces your risks. If you're not having toxic materials, if you're not endangering your workers or the communities in which you do business, you have less liability. You're less likely to get sued. You have better access to impact investment. These are the kinds of companies that particularly the younger people who are about to inherit something like, what, $30 trillion of daddy's money want to put their money into. It better differentiates your brand. It enhances worker productivity. If you enable your workers to be implementing more sustainable practices as part of their day job, they're engaged. And an engaged workforce will give you 6 to 16% higher productivity. It enables you to reduce the cost of distrust. When Walmart started going green, it cut in half the number of people who said, I will never shop at a Walmart. Then, of course, they lost all of that brand equity when some idiot store manager put out a box so that the Walmart associates could donate canned goods so the poorer Walmart associates could afford to have a Thanksgiving. Like, they just shot themselves in the head. Basically, the companies that get it right will be first to the future. And this approach that we call the integrated bottom line shows that behaving more sustainably is just better business. Uh, this is uh, good information. Would you, uh, if somebody's interested in learning more about this topic and sort of understanding the free market elements of this and you know, what you've been talking about, what, what, what should they start with? What book should they read? What resource should they go to? It could be any of your own stuff as well, but I'm curious sort of uh, from an um, investor 101 standpoint, where would you point them? They can go to the website, change-finance.com and read a lot of my short writings. They can come to the Natural Capitalism website and get more of my writings. They can get my latest book, A Finer Future, Creating an Economy in Service to Life. They can read the brilliant book by Kate Rayworth called Donut Economics. Kate says we have to live below the planetary boundaries, but above the human minimums, this sweet and safe operating space for humanity. There are, there are literally hundreds of books now. If that's too much, come take an MBA at the Bard MBA in Sustainable Management, where I teach where every class is taught from the standpoint of how do you do business honorably in this time of crisis, and where this concept of the integrated bottom line is baked in to how we teach you to do business. Hunter, thank you very much for joining us today on Wealth Formula Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It is a great honor. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Obviously, Hunter is pretty down on fossil fuels, and I know some of you are pretty hardcore oil and gas and coal people. I know that. I myself, you know, I like the idea of using renewable energy sources if possible. I mean, why not? If it's cheaper and leaves less of a footprint on the planet, and again, I believe in this climate science and Okay, even if you don't believe in the climate science, I mean, it's possible, it's real, right? I mean, if it's possible, then it's at the very least an insurance policy 
um, that in this case could be more profitable than fossil fuels. But anyway, that's just my opinion. I know uh, that a lot of you have some strong feelings, so please don't email me and tell me about you know what I'm missing here because I've 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 had shows on the other side of this um, about oil and you know the uh, the case for the case for oil and and all that and uh, people sent me mean emails about that one too. I'm just trying to give some information here. Uh, and I and different perspectives. Uh, this show is not intended in any way to be political. The show is about investing, and the real message to take away from today is that it's quite possible that we may end up, you know, a renewable energy-driven world and country, not because we were forced to do so by AOC's Green New Deal, but instead because it costs and made us more money. I mean, that's usually why things get adopted. And it's interesting. I just feel like, you know, the people on the alternative energy side of things really need to uh, really need to understand that you're not going to tax your way into um, getting people to um, act on climate change. It has to make financial sense. I mean, if, if, if solar energy, for example, had the same benefits as uh, oil and gas or coal, I mean, there'd be a ton more money going into that. I know that for a fact. I mean, I would invest in it, uh, but it doesn't have a lot of the same benefits, and that's just the reality. Um, anyway, that's certainly the point. Uh, the point about you know financially, uh, the the pendulum swinging towards alternatives was the the point that Hunter was making. Um, although I don't really know honestly how that money would necessarily end up trickling back into the pockets of people other than the big companies again, which she suggested, of course, which was not ideal, uh, that there would be this, you know, increasing disparity between the rich and the poor. I don't know if, honestly, that would change very much. I think alternatives, um, you can ask them to, you know, be cheaper and, um, you know, and, and they might be more efficient that way. But I don't personally understand how it necessarily would help um, narrow the income gap. But who knows, maybe I just missed something there. Anyway, it's a different perspective for sure. It's uh, probably not what you will hear on podcasts in the same genre as mine, but that's a good thing. We want to hear about different opinions. Uh, If we don't listen to other opinions, we might as well just go into an echo chamber and just, you know, listen to the same thing over and over again. And, and I think that's a danger that you can get into. Uh, and, uh, and then one day something happens that no one ever talked about. And you say, well, gosh, no one, no one even brought that possibility up. Well, they didn't bring it up in your world, but people have been talking about it somewhere else. I mean, that's usually the way it works. Anyway, uh, that is it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.